I'm Kotz, I'm one of the pastors here. We have a lot to cover today. We are starting a new series, and this is gonna be an odd one. I, I guess all of our series are a little bit odd, but this is gonna be especially odd because we're gonna be talking about the church, the thing that you're, you're part of right now. And a lot of things I'm gonna talk about might be review for some of you. If you've been coming to our church for a long time, it's definitely review, but there'll be some new things that's sprinkled in because we're gonna go deeper than we usually do. And uh, if this is your first time, you might be scratching your head sometimes thinking like, really? Um, can we trust this guy? You know, he's a pastor, he's wearing jeans, you know, like, can we trust this guy? Um, I want to earn your trust because some of the things we're going to say to talk about for the next few weeks is going to be a little controversial, especially if you grew up in the church, not specifically this church. So with that being said, let's get started with our new series. It's called Centered Center Set Church. And we're gonna be talking more about this idea, this concept called the Center Set Church later in our series. We're gonna be setting up today's like an intro. I like to think of like the series like a long sermon and we just break it up into however many parts we have to because I can't keep you here for four hours. So let's start off with this idea of um, inviting people to church. I know that's, that's like, like you don't want to do that. A lot of people don't don't enjoy doing that. A lot of people don't like being invited. A lot of people don't like to invite, right? But when I think about the time that I was invited to church, my friend invited me. He was on my tennis team, and I said, "Hey, he's like, you want to come to church?" I'm like, "No," and he's like, "There's girls." I'm like, "Yes, I'll go." You convinced me, you know. And I went, and I, I actually went to youth group first, and then eventually started going to service. That was like my story, and uh, but today it's not as easy because people have preconceived notions about what a church is. When I was invited to church, it was in the late 90s. And in the late 90s, when people invited me to church, I thought, oh no, it's gonna be weird because they're religious and I'm not, right? Those are some of the things that we struggle with. But today, we have more barriers for people to come to church, right? Maybe you've invited somebody or maybe somebody invited you to come today and, and you're like, oh man, I'm saying yes because he promised me lunch afterwards, you know, but I really don't wanna be here and so, but here's a little quick little history. Back in the 50s and 60s, well, maybe more like earlier in the 50s, people had no problem going to church. As a matter of fact, most of the towns in the United States were designed to have the church at the center of the city, and all the roads led to, to the church because on a Sunday morning, they expected every person to be at church. And if there's a potluck, that's where it would happen. If there's a town hall meeting, that's where it's gonna happen. Like the church was the center of the city. But over time, People start realizing, oh my goodness, attendance is declining. We gotta do something about this. And so the pastors and all the scholars got together and said, what do we do with the current church so it's more appealing? And as they were talking, they're like, okay, I know what we're gonna do. You know how Sunday service we have pews? I don't think people like pews. Let's get comfortable chairs. We obviously didn't get that memo here, but you know, right? Or here's a better one. You know hymns? It's so hard to sing those hymns. Let's, let's have more contemporary music. You know, more people will come to church if we had cooler music. And let's have worship leaders that, you know, that are kind of attractive, you know, right? And yeah, let's get one of those. Like, and oh, you know, for youth, well, I don't know if you know this, youth ministry, the idea of a youth group started around that time because they were like, we need young people to come to church. So before, Church was like something that people just assumed that you would go on a Sunday, and now the church was put in a place where they had to somehow convince people to go to church. How do you convince a young person to go to church, right? And so they're like, okay, not only that, we, we should make Sunday service like a concert. Yeah, you know, before we had an organ, you know, that doesn't fly with young people anymore. Let's bring in some, I don't know, like 
guitars, electric guitars. I'm like, oh, whoa, that's going too far. It's like, no, 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 let's do it. And bass, okay, but no dr- drums. Oh, like they had to negotiate. And there are some churches who are still that are like, we don't want to use drums or electric guitars because that's that's the devil's music, right? <laughs> or you know, let's get a funnier, more attractive pastor. And then you know, I didn't get that memo, but <laughs> right. But let's create like let's 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 make Sunday service like a concert. We'll have like a we'll we'll turn off all the lights. Olden days, you know, had stained glass windows, but now let's just make sure there's no outside light coming in. We'll control the lights, and we'll have a spotlight, and um, we'll have a stage. Get rid of the pulpit because you know it's easier to relate to somebody when there's nothing in front of you, right? So they did all these things, and it actually worked for a while. Maybe some of you started going to church because you're like, man, I love the music. Or, hey, you know, that pastor thinks he's funny. Or, right, whatever it might be. It, it worked for a while, right? The reasons why people didn't want to go to church was like, oh, because I'm not religious. And it's like, well, let's fix that. And they made it so that Sunday service didn't seem that religious anymore. But then the church has piled on a lot more extra reasons why you shouldn't attend. Like the way, we don't like the way that the people in the church treat other people or stuff like that. So these problems that we have now in the church can't be solved by making Sunday mornings more attractive. Right? It's not like, let's change the paint, let's, let's put a new coating of paint on the outside of our church and more people will come. That doesn't work anymore. Right? So for these, are these people, these people who study church trends, they're called ecclesiologists. They study this and they're like, what is it that makes the church unattractive in this day and age? Right? So what is the problem? If we could figure out what the problem is, then maybe we could address it and maybe more people start coming to church again. You know, like that's the goal is to get more people to come to church. You know, so I don't know. <laughs> it seems like that's what the goal is. So let's take a look here. Next slide, here we go. Most of the things unchurched people resist about the church has nothing to do with how the church is operated. I have never met anybody who said, you know, you know why I avoid church? When people ask me to come to their church service, I say no, why? Because you know, I just don't like their music. I've never heard anybody say that. I've heard people say, I prefer this music over this type of music, but I've never heard anybody say, I avoid church because I just don't like church music. I think people are willing to suffer through bad music or a music that's not part of their taste if it was some, somewhat meaningful to them, right? I've never heard anybody say, the reason I avoid going to church or, going, or Christians in general because I don't think the pastor's funny. I've never heard anybody say that. I've heard people say, you know, our pastor needs to be better at this or that. You know, I've heard that, but I've never heard anybody avoid church because the sermon wasn't good enough. I also haven't heard anybody say, you know why I don't like going to church? Because the people who are there, they follow Jesus. I've never heard anybody say that before. So what is the reason why people are avoiding church today? Well, church. Now this is a really interesting thing. What is church, right? Here's a working definition that I came up with of church. I hope most of you will agree with me on this one. The church is a community of people who desire to move towards God and live out the teachings of God as demonstrated by the Son of God, right? Church is basically a gathering of people, so it's not a building, but it's a group of people coming together saying, hey, we want to get closer to God, and not only that, we want to follow the teachings of God. Well, how do we know that works? Well, because we saw Jesus, the Son of God, demonstrate it for us. And if you just look at this definition, what is there to resist about this? 
right? There's nothing resistible about this. We are a church that wants to experience heaven together. We want people to be better at life, right? We want people to be loved. We want people to feel like they're valued, right? That's, that's what church is. We are here to love one another, and we try our best to get there, right? We might not be perfect at it, but we're working towards it, right? Like, people love the church. As a matter of fact, from the very beginning when the church was started 2,000 years ago, the church was attractive, now, you might be thinking, like, Cuts, I know my church history. For the first 300 years of Christianity, the church was attacked. It's like, yes, but it's not because they were unattractive. They were, they were persecuted because these group of people, which people are like, we want to be a part of that. Like, these people, they know how to treat one another. We want to be a part of that group. But the reason why people resisted the church the first 300 years is because they realized that when they joined the church, the confession that they had was that they believed that Jesus was Lord, Jesus was king. And at that time, people believed that Caesar, the emperor, was king, and that was a conflict of interest. And so the king, the Caesar, persecuted the church. By the way, if your reason for not wanting to come to church is, I don't like this act, the, to, to even think that, that Jesus is king, that's a legitimate reason not to come to church. Like, if you're like, Jesus is Lord, I don't buy it. It's like, that's okay, right? That's not, then church is not for you. But I've never heard anybody say, I don't like to go to church because I don't believe that Jesus is king, right? So I'm gonna give you like a little quick answer to this question of why is the church unattractive today? The unattractiveness of church is because we took this basic definition of church and we added things to it. We added things to it. And I'll give you an example. I'm going to give you a little confession. And for those of you who know me for a long time, this might come as a shock, or maybe you're like, yeah, I do remember that, Cots. So about 20-plus years ago, I was doing youth ministry, meaning I was, you know, I was in charge of a bunch of teenagers at a church. And, um, and I became a Christian right around that time. So when I started doing youth ministry, it was around the time I became a Christian, and I didn't really understand this church thing. What I knew was that I loved Jesus, and I wanted to be useful to him. So, you know, I would lead the youth. I would try to teach Sunday school. You know, I would wake up early in the morning. I would stay up late the night before, making sure the lessons are ready. Wake up on Sunday morning, make sure I'm there before everybody else. I pray for everybody who's not there yet, but I pray as they're coming in. And when they come in, I greet every single kid. And, and you know, I was like, I was on fire, man. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm a great Sunday school. And, you know, <laughs> and I wasn't getting paid for it either, but it's okay. So um, I was working really hard, and I started realizing that there's a few kids that would always miss Sunday school. And I'm like, man, I worked so hard to prepare this lesson. I wonder where, why they're not here. And so when I do see them the next time, I'm like, hey, I didn't see you last Sunday. Where were you? And they're like, oh, you know, we're part of a basketball league, and, um, you know, we had a game Sunday morning, so that's why we couldn't make it. And I'm like, wait a minute. Let me get this straight, guys. Um, you picked a sport where you bounce a rubber ball and you try to put it into a basket over the savior of the world? Man, you got to get your priorities right, man. Like, I would tell kids, like, how dare you miss church for a basketball game? And, I'll, and there's a little guilt trip that, that I, try, I intentionally put in there, right? Or every once in a while, I'll hear about a kid and it's like, wait a minute, you're dating now? Is she, you know, this boy, right? So are you, are you dating a, a non-believer? Oh, you are. You know what the Bible says about being unequally yoked? I didn't know the Bible that well back then, but you know, like, oh, right. Or you did what at school? You treated your parents how? 
use what word to express your pain? What? Right? And eventually, some of these youth, they stopped coming to church. And that's when I realized, oh my gosh. At the time, when the people stopped coming to church or people pushed back on me, I would look to the Lord and say, Lord, is this what you felt? Like, this is persecution, right? Like, I'm doing your work and then you're treated, like, I'm being treated this way. Just you and me, Jesus. Like, we, you understand me because you know what it feels like to be persecuted for doing the right thing, right? And so I was in this little bubble thinking that I was doing the right thing when in reality I was treating people like trash, Right? And in a way, I was kind of leading a cult. Right? Like, you don't do everything according to my will, then you are out. And I realized at that point, not at that point, like a few years back, I looked, a few years later, I looked back at that, and I'm like, oh, I finally get it, right? That the reason that the church was unattractive was because of people like me. People like me make the church unattractive. We made things unnecessarily unattractive. What I was doing in that youth group was not part of the deal. <laughs> like I, I added something to the definition of church. It's almost like you have to be sinless and perfect if you want to be in. You know, like, <laughs> so often, what ecclesiologists have discovered is that the problem with the church, the reason why the church is unattractive, is because of the people of the church. It's not because of their beliefs. It's not because, like, follow Jesus. It's not because the music. It's not because the operations of the church. It's because there's these unspoken truths that we bought into as Christians. And you know what? If it is, if it is people, then some cosmetic surgery is not going to fix it. Painting the walls, adding a smoke machine, having cool lights, you know, having an awesome live stream, I guess, I don't know. These things are not going to fix our problem. We are going to remain unattractive as an organization, as a movement, if we just think, oh, if we just do this, then it's going to fix it. So, if the problem is people, us, not, actually not you guys, other churches, you know, then the issue needs to be fixed, right? If we could identify what the issue is, let's fix it, right? So, you're, like, because you're saying that it's not, like, the operations of the church, but it's the practices of the church. So, you're saying that it's practices. In, in, in uh, fancy Christianese, this is called orthopraxy, the things that we do because, you know, right? Like, if we could just change our behavior, if we just change the way how we do things or why we do things, then maybe we'll be attractive again. But here's the deal. If the problem is people, we can't just pretend to be good people. Like, we can't just be like, we should get more people into our church if we just pretend to be good people. We have to genuinely be good people, right? So how do we do that? Well, it turns out practices, orthopraxy, does not just happen by working really hard at it. Because this is just a symptom. The core of why we do the things we do stems from something we like to call theology. What we believe about God. This is what we call orthodoxy, orthopraxy. We won't be tested on this, don't worry, okay? But what we believe true to be about God is how we live out our lives. If we believe that God is forgiving, we will be forgiving towards other people, right? If we believe that God is judgmental, then we have every right to think that we're doing God's work by judging other people. Theology informs practice. So for the next few weeks, probably about four or five weeks, we're going to be focusing on just the theology. I told you we're going deep. And then for the remaining part of the series, we're going to finally talk about what does that look like in a church? What does it look like if we live that out? 
So I encourage you guys to be here for the whole series. It's a pretty long one. We're going all the way to Christmas Eve, so buckle up. Giddy up. Yeah, here we go. Okay, so I will just give you a quick preview of, of what we're going to be talking about. Because like in my story, what I was doing, thinking I was doing the right thing, I was creating this line right here, who is in and who is out. Now, these lines typically are not clearly defined. It's just something that we assume is already there. For example, in that story I just told you, because the youth picked basketball over church, I thought, well, I didn't tell them, well, that's where the line is drawn, so you, you better repent to get back into the inside. I was, you know, if you're on the outside right now, get it back in the inside. I didn't say that, but when I asked those questions, the youth automatically assumed that there was a line there. You see how I didn't tell them explicitly that there's a line there, but implicitly they were like, oh, there must be a line right here, that if I choose basketball over God, right? And by the way, they weren't picking basketball over God, right? <laughs> like, if I said which one's more important, they would say, well, of course God is more important. Okay, so... I'll give you an example. Let's just say you're on the inside, okay? And you're on the inside, and then one day, um, I'll just think of something random, like uh, a bad word comes out of your mouth, and everybody starts staring at you like, what did you say? This is church, madam. Like, what are you doing speaking those foul languages? Right? And all of a sudden, without us telling you that there's a line, this person is going to feel like I'm on the outside now. How do I get back on the inside? No one told her that there's a line there, but by the way that we're looking at her and the way that we're judging her, we are all, all of a sudden thinking, she's all, like, she has to assume there's a line right there. Maybe it's a political belief. Maybe somebody voted for the candidate that a church usually doesn't vote for, and you're like, okay, well, no one told me there's a line there, but I'm kind of picking up vibes that maybe I'm on the outside now. Maybe it's your view of the Bible. Some people say the Bible is inerrant infallible. And some people are like, no, this is inspired writing, but there are errors in the Bible, right? And you're like, ooh, what did you say? Oh, and the only legit translation is the King James because it has words like thou and thy. And you're like, oh yeah, because that's how God speaks. You know, Old English, James, King James. Like, so depending on which Bible translation you use, you're out or you're in. Maybe our views of sexuality has put you outside or inside. And sometimes the line are explicitly, like, like, it's right there, you know. But sometimes people will say, hey, welcome to our church. All are welcome. Only to find out that, hey, it's like, hey, all are welcome. I'd love to be a part of your church. Only to find out that you're not allowed to serve in certain ministries because you've crossed a line. And by the way, when these lines, they over-accentuate certain sins over others. Like, so if I lied once or twice, I'm still on the in. But if I were to do this one other sin, then that's, that's, that's out. Like, somebody draws a line somewhere. If you ever wonder why certain sins are accentuated over others, it's because somebody drew a line somewhere, and you picked up on those clues. Our beliefs about who we believe God to be is what determines where we draw the line. So, the question. What beliefs about God have made Christians unappealing? What have we bought into about God that's causing us to draw these lines? Or, by the way, are lines bad? We'll talk about that in the next few weeks. But I'll give you a clue as to where we're going with this. The definition of church I just gave you, and I said it's because we added some things to it, here's something that we need to make very clear. 
It's not something new that we added to the definition of church that made the church unappealing. It's something that's old that, we, that Jesus expelled from the definition of church that was brought back in. That's, that's, these are the things that made the church unappealing. So what is that thing that we added back in? That's what we're talking about today. And next week, we're going to talk more about the implications of that. But today, we're going to talk about what is this thing that we added back into the church that makes us draw lines and creates a us and them and in and out? What is this? Okay. So here we go. So before the church started, so around 2,000 years ago and a few more years on top of that, um, there was this idea called the Old Testament model. Old Testament model. Basically, this is how, now I'm not saying Judaism is bad. I'm just saying that Judaism in its form 2,000 years ago reached the height of just exclusivity that hasn't been experienced before or after that, okay? And in this exclusive model of, Christ, of, of, of Judaism, um, we started to see certain types of features that we see is being, putting back, is being pulled back into Christianity today. So we usually call this the Old Testament model, but I'm gonna call it the temple model because it turns out these features of the Old Testament model, temple model, is found in other religions as well, okay? Any ancient religion, we're gonna see this, these, three, these three features. Number one, there's a sacred place and these, in the temple model, there's always this emphasis on a sacred spot, right? So in Judaism, it was Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a holy city, right? And inside of Jerusalem, there's a building that's even more sacred. That's called the temple. And inside the temple, there's even more of a sacred space, and that's like sacred ground. That's like the holy of holies. You'll see this, if, if you go to a, like a witch doctor, you'll see that um, there's like four skulls that are put on the corner or candlelights, and inside that square, that's sacred ground, you're not allowed to go in there. Okay, every kind of religion has a sacred ground. The second feature, sacred text. So in, in the Jewish belief, there's the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, and there's like the Old Testament, that's called the Tanakh, right? Um, if you're Mormon, there's the Book of Mormon, right? Um, there's oracles, depending on what religion, there's hieroglyphics on the wall, there's inscriptions. Every type of religion has some kind of sacred text. Okay, so you have a sacred place, like a location. There's a sacred text that's usually somewhere within that sacred ground. And the only person who's allowed to enter into that sacred ground and read and interpret the sacred text is usually a sacred man, a, a sacred man or a sacred men. And it usually is a male, okay? And basically what happens is because there's a sacred space, oh, by the way, there was this one time I went to Japan we went to one of those shrines or temples or whatever, and we're climbing the steps, but it's always really high, right? And I was so tired by the time I got up there, I sat down. Once I got to the top, I sat down on the steps, so my back is to the shrine. And the people who work there, like, they, 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 they slapped me, like, <laughs> like, what are you doing? You know, this is sacred ground. You're not supposed to turn your back to sacred. Yeah, anyways, right? But the sacred men, they usually interpret the text for you, right? And they, they tell you that I, they're the only ones that could go in here. So in Judaism, that'll be the priests. Or in other religions, it could be a shaman, right? And usually, they also give you a, some kind of like a, a sacred message, which goes, usually goes like this. I'm going to tell you what you're supposed to do, and if you don't do it, then you're going to be denied some of the blessings from your deity. So that could be, this year, your crops are going to fail, or you're going to lack fertility, or you're not going to be allowed to go to heaven. So these are the three features of the temple model. 
So here's the deal. This is how all three of these connect together. The temple model grants extraordinary power to sacred men in sacred places who determine the meaning of the sacred text. This is religion 101 right here, right? Now the problem with this is this, that the sacred men, next slide, sacred men teach their sincere followers, and they're usually sincere. They're not bad people. The people who follow these people are not bad people. Sacred men teach their sincere followers to see lines where there should be no lines. So these people would say, so uh, what did you do? This, oh no, you shouldn't cross that line. They tell you that there are lines and places that shouldn't be, there shouldn't be any lines. This was true in Jesus' day, and it's also true today. Example of the Jesus' day thing, there's a woman who's caught in adultery. And then the religious people are like, oh no, she's out. There's a tax collector who's cheated people out of money, he's out. There's people who are not Jews. Oh, they, the whole Gentile, they're out. Who's in? Well, I'm in. And if you follow the commands of God, then you're in too, right? They draw a line. And so how do they start treating people? The people who aren't following the same rules that the the people who are in are following, those people on the outside get judged. But when we read the scriptures, what we discover is this, that Jesus came Excuse me. Jesus came to end the temple model and replaced it with something better, something brand new, something entirely new. He wasn't creating Judaism 2.0. He wasn't creating a new temple system. I'll give an example, okay? So take a look. Here's the list again. Sacred place. You know what Jesus did with the idea, the notion of a sacred place? Next slide. He crossed it out of the list, right? He crossed it off. As a matter of fact, right, he says, no, in the book of Luke, Jesus, the whole book is about Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem, the sacred place. Once he got there and he died on the cross and he rose again, he says, now I want you to leave Jerusalem, go to the cursed places like Samaria. I want you to go to the ends of the earth. Go away from what we consider to be a holy ground, a sacred place. If you ever find yourself in a place, in a service or some other, you know, where they're saying, Hey, right now you're standing or sitting on holy ground. Whenever you find yourself in that situation, first be respectful because they believe it to be sacred. But I want you to remember the teachings of Jesus. When, you're, when you find yourself in a place that's considered to be sacred ground, look to your left, look to your right, look behind you, look in front of you, and look at all the people around you, and then look at yourself. And remember what Jesus said, that the person that's in front of you to the left and the right that's behind you and yourself is more sacred than the ground that you're standing on. You have more value, regardless of what their beliefs are, the people around you have more value than any ground on the entire earth. Okay, next, let's go to sacred text. Sacred text. Yes, we believe that the Bible is important. We're gonna teach out of it every single week, okay? The Bible is very important. Okay, but the way we treat the Bible, right, we don't wanna treat it like the people that did in the temple model where it was so uplifted that it was like considered to be like God, right? It's like the joke is that the, the Christians believe in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Scriptures. Mm-mm. It's not, okay. So in the Bible, it says that Jesus came to fulfill the Scriptures. What that means is that Jesus, everything that the Old Testament is about, he, he did it. So the Scriptures are no longer binding to us. The Old Testament does not, it's not, it's not supposed to chain us and weigh us down anymore. <clears throat> 
As a matter of fact, people believe this so much, the first 300 years of Christianity had no Bible. They had stories that they told each other, but there's no scripture. As a matter of fact, the printing press wasn't available, so it was extremely rare for anybody to have the past of the scriptures. And if they happened to somehow luckily get a hold of the scriptures, 99% of the world was illiterate. You'd be like, I got the Bible or the scrolls or the letters. I don't know what it says. Scripture is important. And it should be accessible by all people, not just for the holy people, the sacred people. It's important, but it shouldn't be deified. It's, it shouldn't be overly sacred. Okay, third one. Sacred men. One of Jesus' followers, Peter, he wrote a letter. And he said, you know who the true priests are? In the back in the old temple model, it was all about priests, right? There's a priest. Oh, there's another priest. These are the sacred men. It's like, we're now in an era because of Jesus where all followers of Jesus are considered to be priests. They call, he called it a royal priesthood. If you want to read it, it's in 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, <clears throat> priests, people who are sacred, you know, people of God, they are no longer just for people who have a certain level of education or a certain gender. It is for all people. As a matter of fact, in some cases, in the Old Testament, there's a group of people who are considered to be holy men sacred men, and now he says no Gentiles can also be sacred people. A fisherman from a small town is now a representative of God. A woman, a Gentile woman, is now a representative, an ambassador, Paul will use the word ambassador, of God. So, all people are sacred. So he crossed that off the list. Yeah, there you go. So the old temple system, Jesus came, came to just do away with it. And you know what? It's not just Jesus that was excited about talking about this. It turns out there are some Old Testament prophets who are really excited about this, and they're like, you know what? One day there's going to come a day where we could do away with the sacred text because Jeremiah said, one day there's going to be a day where, where the words of God are going to be printed on, it's going to be etched into our hearts, into our flesh. Right? There's going to come a time where um, um, Jesus talked about this in John chapter 4. He said, you know, you think you have to go to Jerusalem to worship God? Well, there's going to come a day, and the day is already here, as a matter of fact, where you can worship wherever you go. All place. Like, there is no specific sacred place anymore. Sacred men? Oh, man, there's going to be a day when all people, all nations, all people are going to be worshiping God. And how's that going to happen? People would ask. And they would say, well, one day there's going to be a chosen one, a Messiah who's going to inaugurate this whole movement. And so people waited for this Messiah to show up. And there's this one scene in the book of Matthew where, where they finally get it. It's like, oh my gosh, he is actually here. Let's take a look. Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he's hanging out with his 12 disciples. He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? This is what Jesus called himself, Son of Man. He said, who do people say that I am? And the disciples are like, well, yeah, people are talking about you. So when, um, here we go, they replied. Some say, you know, I, they think that you're John the Baptist, the guy that just died a few years ago or was killed. Others say you're Elijah and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Like you're one of those people, like we recognize that Jesus is a man, but we also realize he's a little special. Like there's something different about him. Like he's embodying the spirit of some of the heroes of the, of the past, right? So everybody around him recognized that Jesus is special. 
So Jesus is like, okay, these are good guesses, but what about you? He asked the disciples, what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter, who was the leader of the 12, usually the oldest of the disciples, is the leader of the group. Peter answered, sir, um, I think you're the Messiah, the one that's been prophesied about, the, the son of the living God. We think that you, that's who you are. Jesus, he smiles, he looks at Peter, he's like, Pete. What does he say? He says this, blessed are you. That's his way of saying, yes, you got it, right? Simon, son of Jonah, Peter's other name is Simon, right? For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father and heaven. Like, you figure this out because you got inspiration from God. You figured it out. Good job, Peter. Good job, right? I'm going to write this, Matthew, write this down in your story because this is going to be a big event, right? And then Jesus follows up with this. And I tell you, that you are Peter in the Greek, the, the New Testament was written in Greek. The name Peter means rock. It's the word Petros. You are Peter, and on this rock, Jesus loves dad jokes, he's a pun right here. And on this rock, I will build my church. This is the first time Jesus ever used the word church in any of his biographies. He uses the word church here, but let me let you in on a secret. And maybe you guys already knew this. I'm using the word secret because it, then you're like leaning in, like, oh, what is it? In the original language in the Greek, the word is not church. Yes, the first time that Jesus used the word church, he didn't use the word church. The word in the Greek is this word right here, which is, next slide, ekklesia. And the proper definition of the word ekklesia is gathering, congregation, assembly, basically a group of people. It's later in history when Christianity started to spread and it became more institutionalized that the Germans, because it spread fast up in Germany, when they came to this word, they had to translate from the Latin, because Greek was translated Latin and Latin to language. They took the Latin scriptures and they said, instead of putting congregation or people or community or whatever, let's use a different word there. And I'm, not, I'm gonna probably butcher this. It's the word kirche. K-I-R-C-H-E, Kirche, which literally translates to the house of the Lord. And that was accepted by the church leaders back then because, and we'll talk about this in a second, but they, it was accepted, and since then, this word right here in the scriptures has been translated as church. Now, does that seem like a big deal? It's a huge deal. Because we went from this idea that to what Jesus was starting was a community of people, an assembly, to now a location, a sacred place. We were bringing in the temple model back into what was expelled out of the church movement, the, the, the ecclesia movement. We were now focusing, so when you think, hey, you wanna come to church, you're thinking a location. And that's been etched into your psyche because of this translation. As a matter of fact, there was somebody who was, okay, the first, oh, quick quiz. Who was the person who translated the scriptures into English? The first person to translate into English. Anybody know? No, close. Yes, you are, I love you. Um, <laughs> William Tyndale, he lost his life for translating the Bible into English. People of the church killed him. Why would they kill him? Because when the Bible is, is is available to all. The sacred text category of the three that I just talked about, of the temple system, temple model, gets crossed off the list, and they didn't want that crossed off. 
But when he translated this text, this is what he did. And he knew that it was translated as church in the German, German language. This is how he did it. This is the Tyndale New Testament translation. All I, and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my congregation. This is controversial back then. This was one of the reasons why he was killed. He knew that he was going to get in a lot of trouble for translating the word ecclesia into his proper translation, which is congregation. And for that, he was killed. He was tied up onto a stake and he was burned. Why? Because the temple model. He tried to fight against, next slide, he tried to fight against the temple model. The temple model gave power to the pastors and the priests back then. And Tyndale doing this was a threat to the system. It took power away. And we'll talk more about this in two weeks when we talk about the history of the church. But um, as long as sacred men had the power, they were the ones who were drawing the lines. You're in, you're out. If you pay us, if you give us this much money, then you're in. If you don't give, then you're out, right? This is how the system worked back then. And the sad thing is this is the exact same thing that Jesus tried to get rid of his movement, right? Because back in the day, when, before Jesus established the first ecclesia, there was a temple model and we call that the old covenant. And this is what Jesus did. Jesus instituted a new covenant, a new way to connect to God, a new contract with God. How did he do that? How did Jesus take the old model and make it into the new model? How did he create a system that, was not resemb- that, didn't no-, that no longer resembled the old temple model? Well, this is how he did it. It's really interesting how he did it. Instead of fighting it from the outside, Jesus grew up within the system. He played their game. As a child, he went to school. He's called a rabbi in the New Testament because he went to the proper schools and got the proper credentials. And he was working his way up the ladder that the temple model presented that that existed at the time. So when he got to the top, when he was one of the well-respected people in Israel, and at the time, You know, he was well-known. Whenever he walked, people recognized who he was. When he got to that point, he said, now with all the privileges that I'm given, if there's anybody in this world that could be a sacred man, that would be me. And not to mention, I'm actually the son of God, so that even gives me more cred, right? And not only that, my father has given me power to do amazing things. So by all accounts, I have the right to be called the sacred man. Take a look at this. This is Jesus at his last meal. Okay, he, they finished eating, and it starts like this. John uses really interesting language here. He says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. This is the peak of Jesus' power. I think a lot of times when we read this story, we forget that Jesus is all-powerful at this point. If there's like some level of power, he's like up there right now, okay? So he's super powerful. He's respected by the people of his society, except for some of the religious people who don't like him right now, right? He's surrounded by his disciples, and it says, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. He's like, I know the end of the story is near. I have all this power, and I, have, I went through the system. I'm at the top of the ladder of this temple model also. What would you do with all that power? Jesus says, well, let's have a meal. Okay, you have all this power. What you want, what you want to do is you want to have, have a meal? Okay. And what did he do after the meal? So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. He took out, he took, 
okay, Jesus, you have all the power right now, and this is what you choose to do? It's like, yeah. Okay, remember, you have all the privileges right now. What are you going to do with all that power? Oh, you're going to take off your outer garment, and okay, let's see what he does next. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Wait a minute. Washing people's feet, wasn't that something that only slaves do? And the slaves would say, no, we don't want to do that either. We let the slaves, slave, like the lowest ranking slave is supposed to do it. Like, don't, don't put me in that group. You know, like when you, know, when you walk around Jerusalem, you wore sandals and a lot of dust all over the place and your feet get sweaty, so it sticks, right? And I'm sure it smelled great. And um, so when you come into a nice meal, you have somebody there with a bowl of water washing, somebody, washing the feet of the guests. Nobody washed their feet and Jesus noticed that everybody's feet's dirty. So with all the power he has, what does he do? He takes the place of the lowest of servants and he starts washing his disciples' feet and he gets to Simon, the leader of the pack. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to do what I think you're gonna do? Are you gonna wash my feet? You're not, you're not supposed to do that. Jesus' response, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Like, I know this looks silly. With all the power, all the influence, I choose to wash your feet. What, why? Okay, let's keep going. When he had finished washing their feet, meaning he washed everybody's feet, and there's indication in here that Jesus knew that Judas was gonna betray him pretty soon. He even washed his feet, okay? He put on his clothes, meaning the dirt that kicked up while he was doing it, he put it back on himself and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them? With all this power, I did, it took the lowest place. Let's continue. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, you're right, for that is what I am. Next verse. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. What is Jesus doing here? With all the power, he worked up the system and made it to the top. What does he do with that power? With all power at his disposal, Jesus served his followers. What he did there is he worked up all the way to the top of the temple system, the temple model, and then when he got to the top, he flipped it upside down. And he said, now, there's, now that we flipped it upside down, there's a new ethic in town. If you keep reading chapter 13, we'll eventually get to verse 34. And then he continues and says this. So here, let me tell you. A new command I give you. Up until now, we had all these other rules, right? I'm going to give you, I'm going to replace all that with one new rule. What is it? Love one another. But Jesus, that's not a new command. That's in the Old Testament, right? Like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Because love could mean a lot of things, right? Like, if I were to just go around kissing people, I'd be like, I'm just doing it because I'm loving everybody. No, like, there's a specific type of love that he's talking about. He says this, as I have loved you, you must love one another. As I have loved you, what did Jesus just do earlier in this chapter? With all the power he had, he got on his knees and washed people's feet. This is a big deal, guys. Okay, this is what he's saying. In the old temple model, the way you graded each other, right? Like one time I was speaking at this place and somebody's like, oh man, that guy is so holy. Like what, right? Like there's like a grading scale, right? And if you fall under a C minus, then you're on the out, right? In the old grading scale, it was who is the holiest? The holier you are, the closer you are to God, you must be higher up on the chain than I am. 
Who is the purest? Who is the cleanest? Who follows the most commands of God? Who sinned less? This is how we graded people back then in the old temple model. And somewhere along that thing, you draw a line. But Jesus says, here's a new command I'm going to give you. The way you're going to grade people is not according to that grading scale. The way you're going to be graded now is on how well you love other people. And the more power you have, the more love you better show. The more influence you have, the more you got to show that you care about the people around you. And by this, Jesus says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. No more sacred places. No more, you know, um, Jesus even had this teaching where he's like, if you come to the temple to offer something to God, right, but there's something that's not right with the people around you, leave your offering at the door, go and make the things right with the people you have issues with, and then come back. Because this is Jesus' way of saying, your relationship with God is dependent on your love for other people. God can wait. This cannot. Go make amends with the people you broke relationships with. No more defying of sacred texts. Because Jesus says, I fulfilled them. It's not binding to you anymore. Well, what are we, how are we supposed to know what we're supposed to do? We used to have these, all these commands that taught us what we're supposed to do. No. Love one another. That should cover it all. And so with that, the first ecclesia was birthed. And if you read through the book of Acts, you'll discover that walls came crumbling down. All types of people, people of different races, people of different genders, people of different religious backgrounds, all came to the table and they shared a meal together. It was beautiful. But in the last 2,000 years, somehow the temple model crept back in and made the church unnecessarily unattractive. We started drawing lines. We started grading people. Oh, he, he's a pastor, so he must be this much higher than me on the, the hierarchy of holiness or I don't know, whatever scale you use. Let me just say, I'm cots. I'm, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm nothing special, okay? I'm not. Neither is Lori, neither is Stan. Well, no, he's my father-in-law. He's really special. <laughs> you know, Tim, Tim is... You know, he's, he seems professional now, but when he was in my youth group at one point, he, he was a crazy boy back then, right? He's, we're normal people. As a matter of fact, in this church, no one calls me Pastor Cots. Nobody, maybe, yeah, and that's a good thing, I think, right? We're normal people. There's no more hierarchy in the church. But somehow it crept back in. So the question is this, how do we fix this? How do we fix this? How do we remove the temple model from the church, from the ecclesia? And that's what we're going to be talking about in the next few weeks. Amen? All right, let's pray.